This episode of Warp 5 is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join in on the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode or any other, please join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hi, this is Tucker Smallwood from Star Trek Enterprise. You're listening to Trek FM. Welcome, Boomers, to another episode of Warp 5. I'm your host today, Brandon Shamatella. Floyd was unable to join me today because we had to record this interview on on a Sunday, and uh, Floyd was busy with family stuff, uh, so I had to take the reins on it. I'm, I'm a little bit sad about that, but... Uh, not completely sad because I got to I got to spend an hour and fifteen minutes discussing Star Trek and and the Golden Girls and the Orville with David A. Goodman. We're gonna have a wonderful interview for you guys, and we've been trying very hard for several months to get this uh, get this interview set up, and we finally managed to make it happen. It seemed like every time something would either come up for David or something would come up for me, and it kept preventing the interview from occurring. So finally, we were able to knock it out. We had a great time uh, discussing his career and you know David A. Goodman uh, he's known for a lot of stuff I mean currently he's producer on the Orville and you know he's been the executive producer uh, on Family Guy on American Dad and you know he's even gone all the way back with with Star Trek Enterprise he was a consulting producer there and he wrote four wonderful episodes he wrote the episode of Futurama called Where No Fan Has Gone Before and he got his he started his career on the Golden Girls which holds a special place in my heart and and for patrons of the network uh Justin Ozer and Tim Robertson and I we created a commentary for the episode that David A. Goodman wrote the teleplay for, which is called The Impotence of Being Earnest. And you can get that by becoming a patron of the network at the $5 per month level or higher. Uh, it's just a special little fun episode that we put out. But uh, I don't want to take up any time because it's, it's a great interview. It's a long interview. We had a great conversation. So let's bring David Goodman in to discuss his career. Well, thank you very much, David, for joining us. I really appreciate it. How are you doing today? I'm doing just great, Brandon. Thank you. Excellent. So one of the first things that we do when we get a guest on Warp 5 is we ask them a little bit about their history with Star Trek and how it was their their fandom with Star Trek came about. Uh, I was just thinking about that the other day. I, uh, you know, when I was really little, 
Star Trek was was on the air in its original airing on on the network on NBC, and and I was young and I was a, in my mind a, a show that was very scary. I think I saw a clip of uh, the Gorn episode. I walked into my uncle's house and he was watching it, and the Gorn episode was on, and I was very scared by that. So I didn't watch it, even though I was alive. I didn't watch it in its original airing, and then somehow in the set in the seventies, I. I two friends, two uh, cousins actually, both named Michael, uh, on different sides of my family, and they were both Star Trek fans. One a guy named Mike Metley, who was a kind of a big fan, uh, uh, maybe known in fan circles, and uh, my other cousin Michael Kaufman, and they were both Star Trek fans. And so I started watching it, and I was probably around ten or eleven, and it was rerun six five nights a week, or maybe sometimes six nights on Channel 11 in New York, and I wa started watching, and then I somehow hooked into that thing that used to happen uh, back before VCRs and DVRs and DVDs, and um, was the only way to become a complete fan was to see the episode when it aired. So I started keeping track, you know, I think I, I got a copy of the making of Star Trek and the world of Star Trek, which had episodes guides in them. And uh, that's again, before the internet, you know, um, so I, I started keeping track of which episodes I'd seen. And I started, you know, really becoming very kind of uh, passionate about this show and wanting to see every episode. Actually, the last episode I saw, it, it took me um, you know, the way syndication works, it you, you you run through the seventy nine episodes in about um uh you know uh well how many weeks is that? Fourteen, fifteen weeks. And um and I kept missing uh um uh crap, I'm I'm forgetting I'm I'm blanking on the name. What kind of Star Trek fan? I'm blanking on the name. Uh uh, it'll come to me in just a second. Uh, you know, the Jack the Ripper episode. I, I, Wolf in the uh, Fold. Wolf in the Fold. I kept missing Wolf in the Fold. So that was the last Star Trek episode I saw. I don't remember the first episode I saw, but I remember that was, and I remember this feeling of completion that, I, uh, of, that I'd seen them all. And obviously many of them more than once because I, it, you know, you're not home every night at six or you have a school function, or you're away on vacation with your family, or or your sister gets control of the television one night, or whatever. You know, it took me a long time. It took me a, probably a couple of years to see every episode. Uh, and, you know, and, and during that process, I became more and more of a, you know, a diehard fan, of which I am still to this day. Yeah, that's very, kind of similar to mine. Like, it was on CBC television up here in Canada, and it was on at 3.30, which is right after school. And how I was making sure that I was watching them was I had the, the 1991 compilation books that were the James Blish, ah. but done in, like, the chronological production sure. order. Uh -huh. And uh, CBC aired them in production order, which is my preferred method for watching them. <laughs> and... Uh, I remember my surprise when I came across the mud episodes because Blish didn't do the the writing for those two. Some of these they were like, you know, these new episodes that I'd like oh, never wow. heard of and and whatnot. So that was pretty amazing for me. Yeah, I, you know, I I know this writer uh, Jane Espenson. Oh, I don't know if you know that name. No. Jane, uh, she wrote for well, she wrote for 
Deep Space Nine, and she wrote for Battlestar Galactica, and she's a big writer on Buffy, and she currently writes on uh, Once Upon a Time. And she told me that her exposure to Star Trek were actually Star Trek novels, not published novels, but she had started, she, she didn't even get to watch it. She was reading like, you know, uh, Diane Duane's books, you know, before before she even saw it. So, so people find their way to the show in so many so many different ways. Um, but uh, it, you know that, uh, and then it, it was around that time I think the animated series came on, and that was a very hard show to catch. Like mm -hmm. you know, I think I I missed it in its first airing. I saw a few, but um, yeah, it's funny how that how you find your way to it. Mm -hmm. So would you say that the original series is your favorite? I guess. I, I, I don't like to say favorite, but it's certainly the one I've seen the most. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, but I, I can find, you know, I can find myself like plowing through all the episodes of Voyager. I mean, just like there there's there's sort of moments that each series uh, has that you, you find yourself enjoying in some way. Uh, but because I've been watching original series the longest, uh, that that was the first series released on. VHS, so I collected them on VHS. I actually, as a kid, I actually used a cassette recorder to record uh, two or three of my favorite episodes. So to this day, I could probably recite all the dialogue from Mirror Mirror, just because I would listen to that cassette tape over and over again. Uh, so that, there's a way in which that the, the original series is definitely sort of in my bones in a way that I think, no pun intended, in, in my bones in a way that uh, I the other shows aren't although i you know i love them all mm -hmm. right on what's your favorite my favorite series overall is is d space nine followed yeah. by the original series uh -huh. and uh since i've taken over warp five enterprise has definitely climbed up to probably be my third favorite of them oh, neat. of the series well, that's, so, good. Yeah. that's good if you're doing warp five that it's at least your third favorite <laughs> that's, the, that's the sad thing about enterprise it can only get that high I, i'm a guy who does the warp five podcast <laughs> so tell us your tell us about your first writing gig on the Golden Girls. How did you how did you break into writing and how did you get involved with the Golden Girls? And before you say that, like when I was young, like I'm I'm a bit younger than you, I'm sure. Like I was born in eighty one. And uh when we were young, six or seven years old, at supper time, one night of the week I would get to choose the T V show while we while we ate supper and my sister would get to choose the next day. And I, I don't remember what it was my sister wanted to watch, but I was like six years old. And I always wanted to watch the Golden Girls. Like ever since I was a young kid, I always loved that show. So now you wrote one episode for it. I was on the show for two seasons, uh, mm -hmm. so I contributed uh, a lot during those seasons. With I had a writing partner at the time, um, and he and I had been uh, essentially assistants to producers in, in New York City. Uh, and my the, my boss uh, had worked for the years before she had been a writer and, and she was a writer and she had, she submitted me and my partner's work to the producers of the golden girls and they hired us i mean it's really as simple as that we were we were pretty young i was 25 and my partner was 23 and they flew us out and, and hired us on staff and we worked there for a season and that was when we wrote our our episode and uh we contributed jokes all the way through that season and then uh, the people who were the head writers of that show at that moment left and a new head writer came on and, and he didn't like our work. And so we lasted there a year and then we got fired. So as, as uh, rags to riches to rags, 
learned some important lessons, uh, but worked for some amazing writers on that show. And obviously those actresses, you, you'll never see their uh, kind again in terms of people who understand television comedy. I mean, B. Arthur and Betty White and Ruma Klein and Estelle were all just such professionals and so had such an amazing kind of connection, not just to uh, the audience, the live audience, but the audience through the camera. And that's, that, that's a special kind of talent. Uh, there aren't that many uh, successful sitcoms like that with that level of, of talent. Mm-hmm. So how would you say you've done a little bit of different writing for everything you've done? You've done, um, you know, live in front of a studio com- comedy with the Golden Girls. You've done animation and you've done drama for television. Uh, what are some of the challenges from writing each of them and how would you say they differ from each other? Probably the similarity all the way through is that if, if you know, you'll read this in lots of writing books and it's the absolute truth. If, if people don't care about your characters, they're not going to laugh with you. They're not going to cry with you. They're just not going to stay with you. So the character is, is super important. Um, and that goes true even, that holds true even in animation. Um, I think that having worked in Family Guy for as long as I have, uh, you know, that there's a, there's a mistake that people make that they think the show is just chaos. It's just jokes being thrown back and forth. And, and no, Family Guy is successful because there's a way in which people relate to Peter they relate to Lois, they relate to Meg, Chris, Peter, uh, Stewie, Brian. You know, there are ways in which those characters live, even though they're two-dimensional. They live through the performances of the actors and the drawings of the, by the artists. And um, so that's, that's a similarity across all, all, uh, uh, all disciplines. The, the difference um, is, uh, you know, in comedy, um, it's really important that you have a story that is in and of itself a, a, a conflict and a and there's an arc to it but the story itself has to be funny and that's really difficult uh because you have to have a story where you're and this is one of the challenges of writing for all television shows is that you have to have a story that affects your characters but not so much so that next week their lives have been completely changed by the previous episode so that's a that's a really difficult thing and then the 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 real difficult thing in animation that I don't think people realize is people cartoon characters are not actually that interesting to look at. So when you're doing an episode of Family Guy or Simpsons or you know the the the, the, the animated comedies that are known so well, they're actually packed with much more story than you would have in an episode of Golden Girls, where you could literally have a whole act where they're sitting around the kitchen table, like that could be. Like you can have a whole act of just, or a whole scene of just them sitting and talking. You can't do that in animation. It's just, it'll bore you to tears because when you, when you do it with a lot, a lot live um, actors, you have their, their, their facial expressions and, and their responses to each other. And when you're in animation, you just, you just don't have that. So you really got to pack a lot more story and in a certain way action into a, uh, 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 an animated show um, and then writing in drama you know I haven't uh, writing in drama is you know it's about reality like that's I think that you can sort of push obviously writing for Family Guy you, you push to the bounds of reality 
uh, all the time, even though we would try to have a story that made sense and connected to the audience, we could we would have that story and then we'd go out in all sorts of directions. When you're writing a drama, what I what I found is is you want those people to feel as real as possible. You want their motivations and the way they're talking uh, to feel real. And and in comedy, part of part of the fun of comedy is when somebody surprises you by doing something that's not realistic. Uh, you know that the you know I mean I was the joke I always say about the Golden Girls is that um, you know it's completely unrealistic. <laughs> the sex lives of these four old ladies was completely unrealistic. <laughs> um, I mean they, they were getting laid left and right. I mean it just not it just wasn't realistic. But that was fun, and it was funny. Whereas if you were doing the dramatic version of that, I just don't think uh, you would do that because it just wouldn't feel real. It wouldn't feel like you'd start to question it. What, what, you know, or you'd have to start to dig at who are these, who are these old ladies who have to have sex all the time? Like, what is that? Because I don't know about your life, Brandon, but the old ladies I know, they don't seem driven by that. <laughs> um, so if you're going to have a bunch of old ladies who get laid all the time in a drama, You'd have to figure out some way to explain it and make it part of who their characters are. Do you understand what I'm saying? Is the difference? Absolutely. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so you know, and it's then it's show to show. I mean, you know, Star Trek writing for Star Trek Enterprise is obviously very different than writing for Family Guy. Uh, but you're, I got hired on a job, and I'm working for Brannon and Rick Berman, and and I'm, I've seen I'd seen the show. So I came out in the second season. I'd seen the show, and I'm like figuring out, okay, what do these guys want? What do they like? What don't they like? What do they, what do they need me to do for them? And it took a while to figure it out. I mean, I almost got fired a couple of times. So <laughs> off of uh, Enterprise. So. Uh, so was, was comedy where you wanted to go? Like you started with Golden Girls or did you want to start with drama? See, like with me, with Warp 5, you know, Enterprise wasn't my favorite, but I've come to love it because I've been talking about it so much. So was comedy where you wanted to go or did it just kind no, of end up that way? No, I mean, it's interesting because I, I basically, I had a, I wanted to write for television. There was no Star Trek on the air when I broke in. That Star Trek was my love. That's really what I wanted to do. But there was no Star Trek at that point. It was 19... Uh, actually, Star Trek had just come back. Nineteen, so Next Generation had been out for a season. Um, but I had contacts in comedy, and I could do it. Like I think that what I've learned from my career is that sometimes it's not just important to follow your dream; it's also important to follow your effort. And there's a way in which I can write comedy, which puts me in a really small group of people, like who can write, you know, and so. And I enjoy it. I mean, I, you know, I, I've gotten to work with just some amazing people and I've gotten to write stuff that I'm really proud of. And, you know, so, but I, I think that, um, and then I, you know, I get to, I get to now write Star Trek. I write my books and I've got to write for Star Trek Enterprise. And so there's a way in which I've, uh, I've gotten to do it all, but I went down a certain road because it was sort of my way into the business. And I, I'm very happy that it went that way because I had some amazing experiences. Mm -hmm. And I learned a lot as a writer. Mm -hmm. So before we move on to t talking about Star Trek, uh, one last question about the animation. Uh, how was it di different working for Seth MacFarlane versus Matt Groening? 
And, uh, you know, what was their expectations in writing a script for them? You know, what were some of the differences well, between the two? You know, it's interesting. I mean, I mean, Matt, they're both great guys. And, uh, you know, it's interesting that, that there's a lot, always a lot of people trying to say that there's this kind of rivalry between the shows. And there, there isn't. <laughs> Matt and Seth are, you know, buddies. I mean, they're, they're, you know, when you see them, they, they understand their lives better than, they understand each other better than probably than anybody else does because they're both sort of, sort of similar. The difference between Matt and and uh, uh, Seth is when you're writing with Seth on Family Guy, you, you're writing with the whole half the cast in the room with you. Um, so there's a way in which you know you write a joke for Stewie, you pitch a joke for Stewie, and if Seth liked it, he then repeated it in Stewie's voice, and suddenly your mediocre joke is now incredible because it's Seth performing it in the room. And um, Matt, you know, Matt, uh, when I worked with him on Futurama, I mean, he loved, he, he, he was a great collaborator, um, that, uh, you know, and he worked very closely with David Cohen to create the show. And, and Matt was a big laugher, getting Matt to laugh was, you know, they're very similar in certain ways. It's like they were both the bosses, both super sweet guys and both really passionate about their shows. They really weren't, I wouldn't say there's anything that I thought was different, you know, from my perspective as a writer on both their staffs, all I wanted to do was please both of them. And what I liked about both of them is that they were both really generous people, really gen They They were all sort of true, both, they're both true collaborators in the sense of, they recognize this show isn't just mine, although I'll protect it to my death, but I get it done by working with this group of people who who I respect, and that that was the, that was both of their attitudes on both of those shows. So writing where no fan has gone before must have been like a a dream come true for you at that time. It was it was crazy. Uh, I joined the staff of Futurama. It was the fourth season, and uh, they were talking about doing an episode with Shatner and Nimoy, but their, the story they had floating around was uh, a giant Shatner and a giant Nimoy have a fight over New York City, like Godzilla, basically, but there were these giant, I'm not sure, that's the only part of the, the idea that I heard. And then I joined the staff and David um, Cohen said, we were thinking of that idea or more of a Star Trek kind of takeoff and, you know, they had done a lot of Star Trek references up to that point, so I think they, they weren't sure they wanted to do that. But then uh, we started talking about it, and David decided, let's do, a, let's do the more, you know, something that's real, like a real Star Trek homage. And that was a staff full of Star Trek fans, like top to bottom. Everybody was, in some one way or another, a Star Trek fan. And yet, I had been there a week and a half, and David Cohen <laughs> said, uh, no, I think Goodman's got to write it. Like, I was the biggest Star Trek fan. Like, they just met me, and it was clear that I was a bigger Star Trek fan than everybody. I, You know, there was a certain order in scripts of who would get the next script, and I cut the line because David said, no, no, you have to write this one. So, you know, that that was... Uh, and then, literally, I, um, I, I had two weeks to write my draft. The first week, I was on jury duty, so I was I would go to jury duty and I would go home and write in the night. And then finally jury duty ended and then I sprained my ankle. 
So then I was on crutches and I had to write the script. And, and even with those two annoying things, it was two of the best weeks of, of my writing career to get to write that script. Yeah, it's a pretty it's a pretty awesome script. It's really well done. I mean, there's a lot of great jokes in it. Well, she uh, is the, awesome. The, again, I don't want to take full credit for it. The, the writing staff who drama contributed a lot of jokes to it. It, it was a fun, super fun thing to to work on. Uh, I, I do remember like we were having trouble breaking it, figuring out who was going to kidnap the original cast, and and I said, oh oh, and we couldn't. And David Cohen was like. I can't quite figure this out. I can't quite figure out like who this super fan is going to be. And then I said, what if it's an energy being? <laughs> and he <laughs> laughed and he said, that's it. <laughs> and uh, that gave, that gave so many levels to the parody uh, to have Melvar as the <laughs> super fan. So what aspect of your career do you think prepared you the most for working on Star Trek enterprise? You know, I, I wasn't prepared. Um, I mean, I think I wasn't prepared in terms of my career. I mean, I worked on a lot of shows. I worked on a lot of, by that time, I think I'd worked on 10 or 11 shows at least before I got hired on Enterprise. And what you learn when you get hired on a staff of a, of a television show is that your job is to help the head writer, showrunner do his or her job. Like, and that's not, you know, that's what you think is a good idea isn't always what they think is a good idea. And so you have to sort of uh, understand them and, and you're there to help. You're there to help them do their work. So, so during the staff of um, enterprise, I mean, the thing that prepared me the most that got me the job on enterprise was I'd been reading interviews with Brannon for 10 years, ever since he'd been, you know, he'd show up in sci-fi magazines and I would read the interviews with Brandon and I go into the job interview and I'm just parroting back to him things he said in his interviews, but he didn't know that I was just doing that. I would say, think about Star Trek is that you could write a mystery one week and it's a Western the next week. And I'm literally, literally word for word things he said in interviews. That's how I always feel. And I joke with him now that that's how I got the job, but, but, um, but he really, I think, connected to me in that. And they also wanted to add humor to the show. And I think that they thought hiring a comedy writer might be a good idea. I don't think I added any humor to Enterprise. But <laughs> um, but uh, so it was about, you know, the thing about going to work at Star Trek, and this was kind of a, uh, an Enterprise was show, even though the show was only in its second season, these guys had been doing it for so long. And they had a shorthand and they had, you know, and figuring out how you work in this, in this environment was really tough. Uh, and I eventually did, uh, but, it, but it was tough. It was tough. Uh, I, you know, I, I already got, I was there um, second and third year. At the end of the second season, it was questionable whether they were going to pick up my option. And, and a couple of the guys on the staff played a role, John Scheiben and Chris Black made a played a role in talking to Brandon. I think Brandon liked me, but he wasn't sure he should bring me back. I'd had one terrible episode and one good episode. And uh, they, they said, no, no, Goodman's good. Cause they had worked in small rooms with me and, and that made a big difference in terms of my getting a second chance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you mentioned there and you've talked about it online and I've seen a few interviews. So you, you've got 
what's heralded as one of the worst episodes of the series, and you've also got one that I don't know if you realize is heralded as one of the best with North Star. Like that's a that's a huge fan favorite episode. Is it? You know, it's funny. I, I'm glad to hear it. I um uh I I I feel like I haven't seen enough people saying they like it. I haven't seen people that say they hate it. I think um you know Precious Cargo. I, the joke I always make is uh the the piece of they aired is not the piece of I wrote. So that that my script was terrible and then it was rewritten and made different terrible. Uh but uh uh and it was uh it was uh that was a bad it was a bad start for me and again I was sort of learning my way and you know television's not about learning your way. You've got to be ready to do the job. And uh so that that was sort of my fault I think. I wasn't quite I wasn't quite ready to write a script yet. I should have, I jumped in. I, 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 I said, I'll do it. And that was, I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have, I should have taken a little more time to figure out how things work there. And there were a lot of problems with that script. Um, and that episode, which is, uh, um, you know, which honestly I've never seen. Uh, I can't bring myself to watch it. <laughs> um, yeah. We just recently watched it. The last episode of this that aired, um, we, we tried to do a comparison between the perfect mate and and uh, precious cargo, and we ended up uh-huh. talking quite a bit more about Pres- uh, about perfect mate, and then we really went off on a tangent and and uh, started talking <laughs> about you know the hashtag Me Too and you know sexual right. assault in the media that's that going on right now. So we, it ended up being a very interesting discussion, anyway. That is interesting. But uh, yeah, we just recently watched the two of them. Now, when you were writing it, were you writing it knowing that this was the same alien species like was that something you brought to the script no i didn't no i think that was added later actually um uh but no i i didn't uh and i didn't even make the connection when i was writing it. i mean it wasn't my story rick and brian had come up with the story and and uh um i think uh you know there are touches in there that i'm still proud of but again i haven't seen them but that whole thing where they were where Paul and Archer Khan, uh, the guys, into thinking that they're being put on trial. I thought that was a fun thing to do, and that was uh, that was uh, something. Uh, Chris Black actually wrote that scene, but he and I worked it out. It was based on actually a scene in the book "Clear and Present Danger," uh, <laughs> and uh, both of us had read that book, and we we're like, "You remember that scene where the yeah, yeah, yeah let's do a version of that." Uh, where these Coast Guard guys convince these drug dealers that they're that they can put them on trial, you know, and it's interesting um, where you get your inspiration from. But no, I didn't. I didn't set out to make that connection to uh, Perfect Mate. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the episodes that's really loved of yours, and I'll I'll fully admit here that I'm not a fan of the episode myself, but is Judgment. Oh, good. So, you, why aren't you a fan? Um, I don't like how similar it is to Star Trek Six. And that, uh, yeah, it upsets me. But, <laughs> but I know that I know that it's a very right. popular episode right. of what hold people. Now, now hold on a second. Now hold on. In what way is it similar? Let's have the conversation, Brandon. What? Okay. What? What? Uh, no, and you're obviously entitled to your opinion. But I've read this online before. In what way is it similar to Star Trek Six besides Klingon trial and Rero Pente? But that's the majority of the episode. <laughs> but but it's not about the same thing at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I mean, we're using we're using. I think what I like, the, the, I I can't dismiss that that you know. It, but we're sort of saying, okay, well, this is how the Klingons conduct a trial, 
we have our Rashomon element. Yes. We also yes. have, you know, we're also showing something which is different than Star Trek Six, which is, and it's sort of important to remember this that at this point in Star Trek Enterprise, the Klingons had not become the bad guys yet. Mm-hmm. They've been there and they caused trouble. We were like, we're having trouble with them. Judgment. Two things about that I was trying to do with that script was, okay, we're not going to be able to stay peace with these guys because these guys oppress people and that's not who we are. We help people. And that to me was like, this is going to be the beginning of, of what, what, you know, from a continuity point of view of what, of what was going to be the problems between the Federation and the Klingons. It's like, these people come, we're going to help them, and even though it's going to get us in trouble with the Klingons, but we have to. They're, they're suffering, and this is terrible, and they oppress them. And so to me, the messages of, of and then the messages of, you know, the, the other thing that, that you know, J.G. Um, uh, Herzler's character is going through is we're learning something about the Klingons, which is, you know, you can't have a whole race of warriors. Mm-hmm. You got to have teachers, you got to have scientists, you've got to have, you know, he talks about his parents and he talks about, you know, and I'm sort of talking about things in there about the militarization of a society. And to me, so to me, yes, I'm using the, I'm using the set pieces from Star Trek six, but I'm, I'm talking about a lot of other stuff. It's, I didn't steal anything from Star Trek six, except Klingon, how they do a Klingon trial and they send their prisoners to Rarpenthe. Mm-hmm. But that to me is, that's that's continuity. That's not stealing. Sure, yeah. Because yeah. I'm telling a completely different story. I, I will say, to be fair, it's not just judgment. Like, by the time I got to Enterprise, and even still, after rewatching a few times, I'm very tired with the Klingons myself in general. And well, like, there's well just, I, can't, I can't argue with that. So. Yeah, like Sleeping <laughs> Dogs from Season 1, like, it, to me is brutal. And, and um, <laughs> the... The, the the use again of bringing back the um um oh now I'm the bad Star Trek fan the the Klingon family from Next Generation the the Duras family oh yeah um, well, I'm sorry that's me doing continuity and I just it, I'm glad that we that they ended it at the end of the season uh, with the yes. with the Expanse um, that plot line but I just for me I was just very very tired of the Klingons at that point and that probably contributes to to my lack of enjoyment of the episode. But now, the Klingon who plays Duras in that episode, do you know who that is? I don't. All right, well, that's an actor named Dan Reardon, and he starred in a TV movie that I co-wrote called The Adventures of Captain Zoom in Outer Space. Okay. And this was a, a, a TV movie that was essentially a pilot for a show that didn't go uh, that was basically Galaxy Quest, although we wrote it two or three years before Galaxy Quest of, a, of an actor who plays like a science fiction hero in a 50s show gets transported to another planet who think he's real. Mm-hmm. And uh, Dan's a friend of mine, and I saw a cast of this Klingon. But, uh, um, but you should check out The Adventures of Captain Zoom in Outer Space. I think you can see some of it online. Okay. On yeah. the, the biggest compliment that people do have about Judgment is that they like seeing Klingons that are not warriors and seeing them yep. having a job. And that's, that's the biggest thing that people really like about that episode for sure. I thought that was new. It's like, we, we never, you know, you can't have, everybody can't be a soldier. <laughs> you gotta have, if the Klingons have any, they got, there's gotta be people who are like, you know, accountants. They gotta be Klingon accountants somewhere. I mean, it's like, uh, so that, that was part of the inspiration of that episode. Mm-hmm. 
well, let's jump to North Star here because, yeah, that is, you know, ever since I've been on the show, that's an episode that really has come up as on a lot of people's lists of top 10 episodes for that's Enterprise. Nice. Yeah, wow. and I, I heard a story where you talked about how you pitched it and how it was the first one that was brought to the table for season three that didn't have as much to do with the Zindi arc. Yeah, uh, well, Rick said to Brandon as we were, as Brandon sat with the writers most of the time and Rick's sort of marching orders for season three were, look, we we could do that. We'll do this continuing story. It's cool and that he had worked out with Brandon and the Zindi and whatever, but he said, but we should have a couple of standalone episodes in the pipeline just in case we get halfway through the Zindi thing and it's just not working. Uh, so that, that was, you know, that was just Rick being um, cautious in a good way. You know, you're a TV producer and you sort of say, okay, we're going to do this arc. And then you think you get to episode four of the arc and it's bad. And you're like, we should just abandon this. That, that isn't what happened. Uh, but so Brandon said, pitch standalone stories and 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 he gave and gave the freedom to say you know you you can use original series kinds of ideas so i pitched him this the you know a wagon train was kidnapped uh and and taken prisoner you know uh, by these aliens the skagarn and we find this planet now and the humans have revolted and taken over the planet and Rick heard it from Brandon and said, done, go, perfect. And that, you know, so, so I got to write, you know, we worked out North Star, we worked out the story and uh, I wrote that script and it was a, it was a great experience. I mean, um, the uh, director, uh, David, uh, what's his last name? Uh, did an amazing job. Uh, uh, David Straighton. Straight, David Straighton, um, a very talented director, added just this level of a, vi a visual level to it that you know made it seem like you were. It was in a Western town, but it had an alien feel to it. And, and uh, you know, in my mind, I was picturing the Big Valley, and you know, he made it look like Unforgiven. So I, I thought like he just did an amazing job, and Scott and uh, is great in the episode, and and. Um, that, and they they coordinated that incredible fight scene at the end, and then and then you see something which you don't really see in a lot of episodes, which is and maybe maybe none of the episodes up to that point. You see that shuttle fly over that western town, and it's a it's like something you don't see. You don't see our shuttles interacting with real buildings, mm -hmm. and I, I know it's a little thing, but I, that I love that. I, mm -hmm. I felt like Holmes. This is something really new, but it really was inspired by original series, alternate earth episodes, you know, uh, the Roman episode, the planet of Nazi episode, you know, all those, you know, bread and circuses, Pavis and Force, all those, w which were done back then to save money by reusing costumes and sets and locations. Uh, but, uh, which we, we didn't really have to do, but we had a story that was, that was fun. Well, yeah, that's a staple of Star Trek. And when we covered it, because we're, we're in the middle of, well, we're almost done now, but we're basically in the middle of our season three retrospective and we're taking them four episodes at a time and going into the dive. Uh -huh. And we said that when we we're talking about, uh, when we we're talking about North Star, we're like, yeah, this is very TOS yeah. and it fits right in with that planet of the week feel that it had. That was such a staple yeah. of that show. You know, it's also, it's interesting too, that, that separates original series 
from uh, the more current incarnations is that, and my two my two episodes, Judgment and North Star, are like this in the sense that they're they're really following the arc of an outside character. So it's mm -hmm. the it's the sheriff in North Star and how he changes. Uh, you know, it's really his story in a lot of ways. And then in Judgment, it's really J.G. Hertzler's character's story. You know, our characters are there as catalysts mm -hmm. uh, to change lives of these people. And that that is very much original series. If you look back, that was, you know, really what those episodes were. It ended up being more of a... The show, Star Trek, in a certain way, even though we had our continuing characters, it was in some ways an anthology series too. Like you would have just visit a world and how, how, do, how does interacting with the Enterprise characters change the lives of these people. Mm -hmm. And now I might be confusing on my titles here, but I know that in the novels that are coming out now, there are Skagarans that are like referenced. I think oh, there's yeah? some by David Mack in uh, the Next Generation timeline uh, as oh, well. Like So like that that's a character race that's been, that's <laughs> stuck around. I threw, uh, that's nice to hear. Wow. I threw a little North Star reference in my most recent book. Uh, yes. Just, yeah. But <laughs> yes, in the Jean-Luc Jean Picard book. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, now the the last one that we want to talk about here is uh, The Forgotten, which is a very important episode for Trip. Yes. A very beautiful episode. So uh, tell us a little bit about the inspiration for writing this episode. Well, I co-wrote it with Chris Black. He's a good friend of mine and he was on the staff and we, um, you know, we weren't really dealing with like um, bringing back that idea that the, how, how Trip's sister's death uh, would affect him and also dealing with the death of crewmen aboard enterprise and so it was really about like let's let's bring this back and i think i think it was on i, I think it, honestly it was brandon who said let's let's address this let's we got it we you know we had this whole thing happen at the beginning of the season with florida getting destroyed and then uh, you know and that ship sister and and um we they hadn't really been addressing it. It was like, okay, let's, let's really wrestle with it. So I, you know, I worked on the story with, with Chris and we split up the script and it was also about, you know, the other piece of the story is, uh, um, Archer trying to prove to the, to the, uh, the Zindi, uh, um, sloth, the sloth Zindi that, that, that the insectoids Zindi, or that, that the, uh, the lizards Zindi were time traveling. Uh, you know that that was uh, um, so that that that. But it was uh, you know I think I'll be honest. I think that Chris Black probably did most of the heavy lifting in terms of the emotional trip stuff. And you know Chris is on the drama side a much more experienced writer than I was at the time, and uh, just did a great job with it. We also have in that episode. Uh, the first crossover with Family Guy because that's the episode that uh, Seth guest starred as. Yeah. Later to be named Ensign Rivers. He wasn't named Ensign Rivers <laughs> in that episode. Yeah, he was in two episodes. Yeah. It's uh, funny, the first time I saw it, I'm like, I, I it was on when I did my first rewatch. Yeah. And I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was, I had worked at Family Guy before Enterprise and then it had gotten canceled. So I was still friendly with Seth and, um, Seth was a big Star Trek fan. Rick Berman was a big Family Guy fan. 
so I said, hey, let's maybe we can give Seth a part. And so we gave him a part and then and then he became good friends with Brandon uh, when he came to work on the show. And that has now led to their relationship, which produced Cosmos and, you know, and obviously the Orville. Mm-hmm. Right on. Well, before we get to the Orville, let's talk a little bit about your books that right. you've written here. So you've got three books, right? Yes. So there's the Federation 150 Years and then the two autobiography books. Right. So how was it managing 50 years of canon and coming up with this idea for Federation the first 150 years? Well, the book was not my idea. Okay. Uh, the book was the idea of a guy named John Van Sitters at CBS Consumer Products who had done who had seen these books that were, uh, uh, what was it? I think it was the, uh, the John Adams book biography or whatever there was a there was a john adams biography i think and and then they did a, a book which had like letters and documents in it like re- reproductions he wanted his idea was like why don't we do a, a version of that for federation and uh dave rossi who was a friend of john's and was work and was a producer on enterprise uh and was working at paramount uh john was looking let's see who can get to write this thing? And I want to get a TV writer because I, I want things written in different voices. And Dave said, well, why don't we try David Goodman? And which was the greatest thing ever. I mean, I had never written a book and I kept honestly, have every th- way through the process. I kept saying to John, you know, I've never written a book before. You know that, right? Cause I was really scared by the process. Um, it's a, de- it's a very different writing process writing like that. But once, once, they signed me to do it and you know it was it was a real uh puzzle what i say with all three of these books is that you've got all these like pieces of a puzzle and you know these pieces and and you don't have the full picture but you've got pieces of the full picture and then you've got huge blank spots and then and then my job with these books is to fill in the blank spots so that the pictures that you're already aware of in the puzzle make sense as part of this larger tapestry mm-hmm. um and there were you know, I think that the reason I was excited, there's always something I'm really excited to do with each of the books to fill in. So for the Federation book, the Romulan War was something that like, we had no details of it, none. And I, I, you know, know, a couple little mentions here and there, but almost no details. And I knew I was going to get to really flesh that out and make it make sense and make it, and I'm a military history buff. So I was, there were a lot of references to all sorts of things, Pearl Harbor, League of Nations, like all these things that I, that inspired things in the book. Uh, but I, I, that, that, that was probably my, my biz, biggest excitement was that I was going to get to write that chapter, which I'm very, which I'm still very proud of. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, that was a, the tough book, you know, the hardest part of the book, honestly, was the enterprise chapter because there was no room to make stuff up because enterprise really happened very chronologically there's very few empty spots in there and i had to make that interesting uh but also not can not deviate from what people knew but also i didn't want it to read like a wikipedia entry so Mm -hmm. right on but you were able to add some really interesting enterprise elements now i don't remember that if there was any in the autobiography of James Kirk because it's been a few years since I've read that and I hadn't done a rewatch yet in a while, but there was definitely quite a few in the Jean-Luc Picard book that you recently wrote. Well, there's Enterprise stuff in the, in the Kirk book too. He's on a, it's little, little things. I think the, uh, 
it's, you know, I don't say it explicitly, but um, I think Malcolm Reed is the commandant of Starfleet Academy when Kirk is there. I think uh, they're on a the Kirk's trip that he takes to um, Tarsus Four as a kid. The name of the captain is Mayweather. You know, okay. uh, so there's all these little these little things, and I never I never say explicitly it's them, but I I definitely uh, made sure that you know that we had for an Enterprise fan. If you're reading these books, there's stuff there's stuff in there, and obviously, uh, Enter- uh, and in, in Federation there was. I filled in, you know, I definitely filled in stuff like what happens to Archer after the Enterprise and all, and, and, you know, the hardest thing to figure out in, in that book was um, making two pieces of what seemed to be conflicting uh, references to the first meetings with the Klingons make sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in, in Picard's, in, in uh, First Contact, Picard says, uh, the reason that way, the reason we uh, proceed this way in me a new culture has to do with this disastrous first meeting with the Klingons. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we see the first meeting with Klingons in Enterprise. We see it. So what was disastrous about that? It didn't seem disastrous. Uh, but if you read my Federation book, I actually show you why it was mm-hmm. and why it led to all the conflict that would would plague Federation. So the, there was those kinds of issues too. And then uh, there were fun things in the Federation book, like uh, there's a reference to the Battle of Sharon in Next Generation, which people attribute to the to the uh, Romulan War. And then uh, is that the same Sharon that is in Let That Be Your Last Battlefield? And if it is, what what's that connection and i find this connection that i was just so like proud of because if you remember and let that be your last battlefield uh beale's ship is invisible so i came up with this whole thing that the romulans were buying their cloaking technology from the people of sharon and that that was that and they were buying ships and and that was i was just really proud of that connection that was just you know serendipitous because just because in let that be your last battlefield they didn't want to build a new model so they said oh his ship's invisible <laughs> but i found a way to make it connect to the romulans excellent yeah so i haven't read the federation 150 but i've read both the the kirk and the jean-luc picard autobiographies and what i really appreciated about those books were you didn't just tell the stories you know, like there was a couple of stories that I really wanted to know from each of those characters, right. but you also came up with some new ones as well. Like for, without getting too heavily into spoilers, um, yeah. there's the there's the story in the James T. Kirk autobiography of the the Star Trek Five story, which was just <laughs> brilliant. Thank I absolutely you. loved it, and there was the really interesting story when Picard and Data take that undercover uh, right. mission. Which I don't right. want to give away because if I say yeah. who it is or whatnot, it'll be a. I think it'll be a spoiler. But it was really nice to have these extra stories in there as well as the ones that we were wanting to read. Well, right. Even thank you. Well, the, in the, uh, you know, the uh, the the Star Trek Five story again without giving it away. I mean, reflected how I felt about that film, <laughs> and and 
I really, you know, like, I don't, I don't want to have to, I, I felt like I wanted to explain it in a way that makes it part of the story, but isn't. And then um, the, the data Picard thing to me made sense because it takes place before they're serving together on the enterprise. And, you know, I could do the whole undercover mission to Romulus again in my book, but everyone's seen it. You know, anybody reading my book has probably seen that two-part unification mm -hmm. episode. And even if they haven't, they should go watch it. I can't do it better. And I wanted to say, you know, they, they, it's so quick that the Admiral say, you guys are going on an undercover mission. I wanted this idea of like, the reason they chose them was because they'd done something similar before. Not in, in any way exactly the same, but they'd done something successfully before. And... Uh, I obviously found a way to tie it into some other mystery. What well, you're again, you don't want to spoil it, but some other what I consider a mystery, a canon mystery, mm -hmm. uh, like you know, uh, and, and it was a great way to bring back a, a character who who I love, so. my favorite character. Yeah, he's he's <laughs> he's terrific. Well, it's also that character just you know, John Billingsley is such a great actor. We're talking about Fox, obviously, but. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but I feel like your listeners would know who your favorite character is. So you yes, I've already mentioned once or twice, so minor spoiler. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 also with the Jean-Luc Picard autobiography, I mean, I love that you, you you acknowledged all canon because at the end you're making references to the Kelvin timeline and the and the 2009 film. You know, it's really interesting. I, I have to be careful about that because I, I did that in the uh, Kirk book too. And, and then somebody put it up on the Amazon page and, and I got all this negative, uh, <laughs> these negative reviews from people who hadn't even read the book, mm -hmm. but just read the spoiler that I reference, you know, um, uh, that I reference, you know, the Kelvin timeline a little bit. But to me, you know, Leonard Nimoy is in JJ's movie. It's mm -hmm. canon. Yeah. Sorry. You don't like it's too bad, <laughs> you know. Leonard Nimoy Spock, and he's in JJ's first movie. I'm sorry, it's canon. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there are a lot of I think there are a lot of fans who just don't want to say that that's canon. And it's like I I think if Leonard's in it and it's got Star Trek on it, you know, <laughs> that's the. And I like I love that first movie. I think you know I think the origin of. You know, Kirk's birth and then Spock on Vulcan and as a kid and and uh, I don't know so much great stuff in that movie. I, mm -hmm. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Now we were talking on Twitter. We were going a little bit back and forth, and I, I'm gonna I'm gonna say what I said to you there, and that you'd mentioned that some people were wondering, like, not everything you've written follows in line can canonically with the novels that have been written, right. right? And you know, how does somebody like me who reads the novels? Uh, work with that. And I, I responded to you, I'm not going to let something as stupid as canon prevent me from enjoying a good story. Well, thank you. That's very nice. I think, you know, I, I think I've gotten my own, I have now with these three books and now my next book, I've got my own novel verse. Right. And, you know, I, they are all internally consistent. So if you read my books, you're going to, yes. you're going to, the, there's consistency all across all, all of them. Uh, and so to me, I understand, I would understand the frustration of somebody who read, you know, reading the other novels and, and, you know, that where they establish, I guess, Picard has a son, which is not part of my book. Um, I can understand that frustration if you like that, if you like that piece of the story, but 
you know, I, it doesn't serve my story to pay attention to that canon. So, well, Michael Jan Friedman's Stargazer novels, he wrote the origin story for when Guinan and Picard met. Uh, and yours is very different from that. But you know what? I liked yours better, right? You know, oh. your, your Guinan storyline. Like, it's really, really good. And it's a really kind of creative and interesting way, right? I didn't so, read those. I didn't read those. I, I, I'm a fan of Michael Jan Friedman's books. I loved Crossover. Um, but, uh, um, but, uh, um, yeah, well, the six, guy is, what's that? He wrote six Stargazer books, uh-huh. uh, under the Stargazer name. Uh-huh. I'll check them out. But I, yeah, to me, I had different, I had different priorities in this book because I had to, um, make it, I, the, the meeting of Guinan, you know, serves a lot of different purposes in this story. And so in my story, and so for me to have to adhere to somebody else's version of it, I wasn't sure. Uh, I was aware of those books. I didn't, I didn't know what Michael had done, but um, Guinan, Picard meeting Guinan and the sort of the jokes that I write and all that stuff that are part of that story uh, to me are, uh, are necessary parts of my book. And I don't know that if I was adhering to somebody else's, idea of canon i would be able to carry it out the way i needed to Mm -hmm. and the other thing that i messaged you about it was you know if somebody has a problem with that then the easy way to explain something like that is in the book itself picard makes reference that he's going to the archer building in in on starfleet campus which is all about john jonathan archer and then you've got your editor note at the bottom that says actually it's uh (laughs) it's his dad, the archer, right. that's a common thing. And it's like when you're writing an autobiography, you know, people's memories differ, right? And they change over time and people's well, that's perspectives a, that's, change. I think that's a good uh, a good way to look at it too. That there's a, I don't know if you noticed, I have that same, yes. Captain Kirk <laughs> makes the same mistake when he yes. goes. <laughs> and I, that was honestly, that was just a way to do, you know, to, I could have just said archer building and left it, but I wanted to bring up, you know, I wanted to bring up a little bit of enterprise history about Henry Archer and whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Right on. Well, before we move on to the Orville, I just want to thank you for those two books. I loved them. You thank know, you. They were absolutely amazing. I can't wait for the next one. I know you're working on another one. It's not the character I wish it was, but I'm still eagerly looking forward to it. I yeah. think that the next one should be Archer myself. I think this format would be wonderful for Archer. But it's Spock for the next one, isn't it? It, it, it is Spock. And I think, um, you know, it's interesting. I feel that uh, the it, it really is interesting. And I, you, I obviously write these books uh, for Star Trek fans. But the Kirk book a lot of people who are not diehard Star Trek fans read it. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm not getting that same play with the Picard book. Okay. And I think in writing the Spock book, that it's such a sort of iconic character that I'm sort of hoping to find, find those readers who can, who I can sort of bring in. Uh, but again, I start by make, writing a book for Star Trek fans. So that right. whether anybody else reads it or not, you know, and I don't know that Archer is enough of a uh, well-known character that, people beyond Star Trek fans would read it. But, um, but thank you. I, you know, I guess if, if I keep doing them, I guess I, I don't know who I would do next. I, I, I also like sort of stopping with trilogy because Spock crosses over with both Picard and Kirk, right. Kirk and they're going to be scenes 
in each of the books, in the Kirk book and the Picard books, that will then be replayed slightly differently in the Spock book. We're going to get to see them from Spock's point of view. So obviously Spock meeting Kirk and McCoy for the first time is one example, or, you know, the mind meld with Picard, or um, that happens in, you know, um, the all these things that I think are, are fun, uh, fun way to sort of tie all three books together and, and give somebody who's read all three these sort of prizes when they read the third one. Mm-hmm. Well, bravo, David. The books are outstanding, and I look forward to the Spock one so much. Thank you so much. So on to the Orville right now. So that's the big thing in your career right now that's going yeah, on. So sure. um, the one thing I want to ask first off is how do you feel about the fans? And I'm frustrated when there people are like, oh, this is true Star Trek, and this is not Disco's Discovery's not Star Trek, Orville's Star Trek, and right. like all this nonsense that's going on. As a creator of the show, how do you feel when you when you see those things and hear those things? Well, you know, it's been go- it, 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 it goes back to, since the beginning of time as Star <laughs> Trek fans, Star Trek fans yelling about the new Star Trek series. I mean, it's just not you just it's just a given. Uh, I I don't think we're competitive with uh, Discovery because we're not on at the same time. <laughs> like I think you know I I I've said this numerous times. I think I'm excited that there are these two shows that take place on a spaceship. I got two things to watch. Uh, you know, I think discovery is great. I, I think it's, you know, they're doing a really interesting new kind of Star Trek and they're, uh, you know, and like, like every Star Trek, there are hits and misses in, in it, but it's very well done a great cast. Uh, and it looks, looks terrific. And they're doing something new, which I like, I like mm-hmm. good, something new. Uh, a new way of telling stories that shows the, the, the flexibility of Star Trek. You know, fans, they say they, you know, they're fans, they say they, they're upset uh, about it, but they're still watching both. <laughs> like, you know, I, there's this one guy on one of the websites every week uh, when we have a new episode of Horrible, he goes, at, he goes on a rant about, about it. And I read it every week and I'm like, and I never comment. I never post on this thing because I, I think he'd just get mad at me. But I, I'm like, he's watching it beginning to end. I got no complaints. <laughs> you know, he, you know, he wants to rant about it. You know, great. It means he got to the end. <laughs> That's the, uh, you know, and and so to me, I think fans like, I like fans like to own their Star Trek. They like to own it. They want this to be mine. And so when somebody says somebody does it in some way. That's not theirs. They want to. They want to feel like uh, that. They want to be heard about it. And, and and you know, honestly, too, though you you read criticisms from fans, and sometimes they're right on. Sometimes a fan uh, criticism of your work is absolutely dead on. Like it's like you know what? They're right. And you know that's one of the great and terrible things about the internet. <laughs> mm-hmm. Now, I, I watched the first, I think it was five episodes, and then I also host The Edge, which is our Discovery podcast, uh-huh. and so I had to start watching Discovery four times a week in order to prepare myself for that, <laughs> so I didn't have much time for much else. But out of the first five that I watched, I, I didn't get to your episode, um, but it was, there was some really good stuff in there. It took a couple episodes for me to, to get into it and get kind of what was, was happening, because it is looks so much like Star Trek, but yet it's different. But Take this, I hope this is the compliment that it's intended to be, but the episode where Bordas is on trial for his child, 
Whereas, yeah. like, that would be that would be top ten Star Trek if that was a Star Trek episode. Yeah, that was a that was a great episode. I mean, uh, you know, I, I, Seth wrote that one, and, and we worked it. We all worked on it together. But I mean, it really was Seth and then Brian and directed it. And you know, you're really dealing with like issues there that are really current issues about sexuality and parenting and uh, through the through the lens of sci-fi, which which really is this Star Trek way of telling the story. So. But updated, modern, you know, really, and with a sense of humor, you know, uh, which is really important on our show. So. Mm-hmm. Now, the episode you wrote is called Old Wounds, is that correct? No, I wrote Krill. Krill, okay. So That's episode six, yeah. Episode six is yours? Okay. So when you were writing that, um, tell us a bit, little bit about, because I, I, don't, I don't know as much about the Orville, so I don't want to, this, this question's not coming up right, so the way that I want to word it. <laughs> don't worry, right. So, when you're writing an episode of the Orville, how conscious are you that you're you're making like a com- kind of a comedic version of Star Trek? Well, you're not. I mean, Orville is its own thing. I mean, mm-hmm. it's not. I, I know it looks like Star Trek, and I know, but you're not thinking, "Oh, I'm writing Star Trek." You're you're writing a show. You know, so when we're working on stories, you know, I mean, two, three of the people in the room worked on Star Trek. So you have Brandon in the room and Andre Bormanis and me when we were breaking these stories. So, uh, you know, and then Seth's a big Star Trek fan. So you're talking about it, but then you're, but then it's about Orville. It's about our characters. So there's a way in which it's like, you're not writing Star Trek, you're writing Orville. You're writing what's going on with these characters and how our characters react and, and uh, act and react with each other and to the aliens is, completely Orville. It's not Star Trek. Uh, and so that to me is, you know, you, you, you're writing a story. You want to make sure that your characters sound like Orville. They sound like our people. And our characters are, are, I think, in many ways, much more flawed than Star Trek characters are. They're much more, um, they're not the hottest crew in the galaxy. They're, they're competent and they succeed, but they get annoyed. They get, you know, pissed off at each other. They get, uh, you've got that relationship at the center between Ed and Kelly, uh, husband and ex, uh, ex-husband and wife. Uh, you've got the friendship with Ed and Gordon, the f- friendship with Gordon and John, the relationship between uh, the doctor and, and Lara. And, you know, uh, these are all unique characters to our show. And so how they move through a story is very different than the Star Trek episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, now you've got a lot of, you know, talented and amazing actors that are coming in the last episode that i watched um they were on a a ship that was kind of like a uh not a western town but they, they go to the ship and it's like a long distance ship that's uh it's been a few months since i watched it they're, they're oh, just going from you, one you, star to another yeah the bioship and uh jim morrison James Morrison, who I know from Space Above Beyond, was on yeah, it. And yeah. It's like that's an underused actor in my opinion. That guy's great. But <laughs> you've had, you know, Robert Picardo's been on there. You got a lot of Czech alum that have been as guest stars. You've had, um, um, what's her name that played? She played Monst- in the movie Monster. She was the star Char- of Monster. Charlize, Charlize, Charlize Theron. Yeah, yeah. Like you're getting some really amazing people on this yeah. production. Well, part of that, I mean, most of that's due to Seth. I mean, Seth has made movies, and he's a he's a pretty big guy in this business and so and 
you know, so Liam Neeson guest starred in an episode, and yes. and, and and Liam and and Charlize were were in a movie that Seth directed, A Million Ways to Die in the West, and they loved working with Seth, and they Seth called them and say, hey, could you do this? And they were both like, let's go, you know that, and that's a function of of people who've worked with Seth really wanting to work with him again, you know, and and so, and I think they were both, you know. Uh, they both love the parts and, you know, and Picardo, we're all fans of Picardo and, uh, you know, that he, uh, and we had Jeffrey Tambor and, and Alan Taylor play Ed's parents in episodes. And it's fun to have those two and, you know, but we're, I think Seth's a big, Seth's a, an attraction for people to work with. He, he's somebody people really respect and admire. Mm-hmm. The first interview that I got to do for Trek FM was on my podcast, Melodic Treks, which is all about the music. And I got to talk with Ron Jones for my, oh. my very first interview. So I was like, it was pretty awesome to talk with him because he did a lot of work on, uh, yeah. on Family Guy. Yeah, no, Ron, Ron is a super talented guy. Well, Ron does music for Family Guy. Yes, did. yes. He used to. Uh, a very super talented uh, uh, composer. Yeah, for sure. Um, now, one of, one of the listener questions that we have, so Norman Lau uh, says, have you started to write any episodes for season two of the Orville, and what would you like to see happen in season two? Well, we actually already have a few episodes written. Um, we're going to learn a little bit more about uh, the Kalon, uh, Isaac Race, Artificial Intelligence. I think that's going to be an interesting thing for fans. Uh, we're going we're gonna, to couple of great Bordis episodes in the works. Uh, we got, um, uh, and we're going to, uh, another, another great Alara episode, uh, we're, we're starting to talk about. So we've just started, uh, we had a couple of scripts left over, which, uh, why I know we're, you know, we have the Kalon episode and, the, um, uh, but so to me that, that, you know, I, I like exploring, as, as I do in my books, I like exploring the world. Seth has created this sort of framework galaxy, and I, I'm hoping that we can sort of start to fill in uh, some of the history of, uh, of our Orville universe uh, and how did, how did we get to where we are. And I always love that kind of stuff. So. Mm-hmm. Now, Joe Saltzman asks, how much did the final version of North Star vary from the original idea and if there were any many major changes can you elaborate on the on the differences no there really weren't i mean it was pretty close to my original pitch i think uh the big change was i don't think i had i'm now forgetting the names of the characters but there was the sheriff and the deputy Mm -hmm. and i don't think i had the deputy i think i just had no that's not true because that no, that's not true. I definitely have the deputy. I think I might not have had the good sheriff. I, it, it, this, the, 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 the two characters and that relationship was something that was added a, a little bit later. But, I, but for the most part, it's, it's the, the episode is, is pretty close to the, to the, uh, to the idea. Uh, I think the only thing that um, uh, I wanted to do, which just was too expensive, was I wanted to show, start open the show, showing the wagon train being abducted. Okay. So start back and and then and nobody's I don't think anybody's made this connection. But in the bar, the bartender says points to the one of the founders of the colony, Cooper Smith, 
and Cooper Smith is the name of one of the main characters in the television show Wagon Train. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, which was one of uh, was one of Roddenberry's inspirations for Star Trek and Wagon Train to the Stars. Right. Wagon Train was a very successful Western show that was on for a very long time. And um, I had I named uh, I named some characters after, and then we changed the names. But nothing, 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 nothing interesting. Nothing, no interesting changes. Okay. Now, Jay Scardina says Judgment is one of my favorite Enterprise episodes. Whose Thank idea? You, Jay. <laughs> whose idea was it to make Archer's Klingon lawyer, lawyer stay behind? Oh, that was mine. I mean, I, I, yeah, it was my idea was that you know that. Uh, the, having the lawyer like I, I what I was doing with that was I was planting the seeds for what would be the post next generation Klingons which were Klingons that were like or the actually the next generation Klingons that were uh about honor and that because the Klingons we see in original series are not particularly honorable right. they're really kind of the bad guys and sort of what I'm saying in judgment is Look at look at where this this the Klingons are headed. They're headed to what we know to be the original series Klingons. But uh, Kolos is that his name? Kolos? I'm not forgetting his name. But uh, JG Herzl's character is like he's remembering what it means to be honorable. It, may, it means to, and and he's the beginning of the seeds of what would be the next generation Klingons. And you see him sort of chipping away at ice uh, at the end of that, and that's sort of a metaphor for. I'm going to keep chipping away at this until we change our culture. Nice. <laughs> right on. Well, what are some projects that you're working on right now, other than the Orville that some, some of the listeners can watch out for? Well, I mean, the autobiography of Mr. Spock, which is going to come out next fall. That, that's, uh, that's something I'm doing right now. Uh, but Orville pretty much takes up uh, right now. It takes up full time. Uh, it's a, uh, you know, we're, we're in the room every day working on these scripts. We've got you know we're going to start shooting in the spring, so we got to get those scripts done. And you know it's it's a it's a big it's a big uh, it's a lot of work, but it, we're having a great time. So. Good, good. Yeah. And is there any aspects of your career that we haven't touched on? Because there's a lot of other shows that you've worked on. Is there any other stories you'd like to share that are particularly special to you? Well, I you know the the, the one of the losses of my career is that that the, the, the adventures of Captain Zuma in outer space, which I mentioned earlier. And I think somebody posted it online and it's a fun little movie. Ron Perlman, uh, okay. you know, Beauty and the Beast and, yeah. and Sons of Anarchy is, uh, is in it. Uh, and uh, Michelle, Michelle Nichols is in it. Uh, I got to work with Michelle on that. Uh, um, uh, you know, Dan Reardon, uh, Liz Vassie, who is a very well-known actress uh, from CSI and, other things. So anyway, it was a fun, uh, fun little movie that we did, and I think I think people who listen to your podcast might might really enjoy it. Um, uh, no, I you know I've, I'm I'm very fortunate. I've worked now for close to thirty years as a writer, and it's uh, got to do so many fun different things. And uh, I did a Lego Batman movie years ago, which was off of the video game, which you can see, which I'm also very proud of. But uh, you know, to get to do all this kind of stuff is obviously I'm very lucky to have had the career that I've had. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Where can people find you on social media if they want to follow you or 
interact with you? I'm on Twitter at David A. Goodman on Twitter. Uh, it's my, I'm, I tweet, I tweet mostly jokes and a lot of them are anti-Trump jokes. So if you're, if you're politically not in that realm, I wouldn't follow me. Uh, I think you'll just get annoyed. Uh, but, uh, uh, yeah, that, that's mostly, that, that's the only social media I'm on. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, David. It's been a real privilege to speak with you. It's been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. Brandon, thank you so much for reaching out. I had a great time. It's been fun talking with David A. Goodman today about his career, but it's not the only thing we've been discussing here on the network. So take a quick listen to some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. I think they do that really good with another, if you want to call it Easter egg, which is when Michael does commit her act of mutiny, uh, she does it with a Vulcan neck pinch. And that's, you know, right in the tradition of Spock, right? Spock does that in the menagerie. Uh, when he commits his act of mutiny, he, he, he does that to a fellow Starfleet officer. Warp 5. I think it's it's a lot more than that, and this character is an incredibly in-depth character and there's a lot more to her than this and I think that the reason that the the evidence for this is because of how she reacts with Picard and even Picard like Picard has this opinion of her the orb and so I I feel as though O'Brien really is one of the characters who kind of opens up this idea for Rom that there's a different type of life and I honestly think O'Brien is kind of the character that Rom probably looks the most up to on the station yeah, and, I think so. and, and would yeah. want to be like if there's somebody that Rom's like oh I wish I could be like somebody when I grow up it would be O'Brien Standard Orbit All these different languages and so forth and it just instantly translates based on what has already been figured out between you know two beings or, or whatever this is different the translator does not work that way and I thought that is that is really sci-fi right universal concepts coming through brain waves in order to translate into language that's pretty neat and that's what else is happening on trek.fm so check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond you'll find us wherever you get your podcasts If you're an Apple user, please be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or on the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And please leave us a star rating and a written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 from our website or grab the RSS link as well. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm contact. You could choose Send to a Show and select Warp 5. That will come right to Floyd and myself. You can also find the network on Twitter at TrekFM and on Facebook at facebook.com slash TrekFM. The best place to find Floyd is in the Babel Conference. You can find me there, but you can also find me on Twitter at Brandon Matella. 
You can find me here on the network with The Edge, which is our Star Trek Discovery podcast. And you can find me over on the Fandom Podcast Network with my friends Chris and Tom, where we have a podcast called Good Evening, an Alfred Hitchcock podcast. And we go through Alfred Hitchcock's movies one at a time, all the way from the beginning. And coming out very soon is our episode on the silent film The Farmer's Wife. If you'd like to keep all of our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more. Available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month, and we really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. And at this time, we'd like to thank the associate producers of Warp 5 for all of their support by supporting the show Warp 5 as well as the network Trek FM. So thank you so much to Norman C. Lau, Floyd Dorsey, Mike Morrison, Tip, Tim Cooper, Justin Ozer, Mark Flessa, and Joe Saltzman. We really, really appreciate your support and we couldn't do it without you. Well, that's all we got for you this week. Stay tuned next week as we continue on with our Season 3 retrospective. So we'll be covering the next four episodes of Season 3. And I don't have my list in front of me, so if you give me a second, I'll check it out. Uh, Season 3, Part 5. We have a few great guests. we got Patrick joining us, as well as Michael Wong. The episodes we'll cover are Hatchery, Azadi Prime, Damage, and The Forgotten. Well, until next time, boomers, thanks for listening to Warp 5. <laughs>